want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew, the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26 will be our passage this morning. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And just for context, I'm going to go ahead and read that. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into hell fire or fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up to the last cent. I have a question. How many of you have ever experienced anger? Kind of a rhetorical question, don't you think? Because the answer is obvious. Everyone has experienced anger. Whether it's your anger or it's the anger of someone else, anger is ubiquitous. And every person has to contend with the anger in their own heart and deal with that anger. But we live in a culture that says that anger is perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with it. You shouldn't be upset about it. You shouldn't try to get rid of it. It's okay. The main thing about anger, according to our society, is how you express it. There's good ways to express your anger, and there's some bad ways you should express it. And if you find the good ways to express anger, you're good. If you use the destructive ones, not so much. You know, as long as there's no yelling, screaming, fighting, physical violence, or obvious outward displays of anger in public. But if you want to go home and punch your pillow, or scream into your pillow, that's perfectly okay to the world. But when you're out in public, you got to hold it in. Don't let that out. And as long as you do that, it's not a problem. And they think, if I never express my anger, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly okay. Have you guys heard this before? What's the problem with having anger in my heart that is not expressed, if it doesn't come out, what's wrong with it? That's the answer we're going to learn this morning in our passage. In Matthew 5, 21 through 26, you're going to see three problems with your anger so that you'll be motivated to repent of it. And obviously here, we're not talking about righteous anger. We're talking about sinful anger. There is a way to be angry righteously. Jesus was angry and he was righteous in his anger. Righteous anger, just to let you know, is focus on God. It is God-centered. It's all about the glory of God. You're upset because God has been offended. That is not true of sinful anger. Sinful anger is our topic this morning. The first problem with anger, if you are angry, you are guilty. If you are angry, you are guilty. Look at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. Ancient here, the ancients refers to people who lived in former times, who lived long ago. And we can find out who these people are because it quotes, you shall not murder. And you know where that comes from. That comes from Exodus 20, verse 13. That's the law, the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And when he says the ancients were told, who told it to them? God. Now, we need to be clear here. When he talks about murder, he's not talking about a prohibition on soldiers killing in war. He's not talking about that. We know he's not talking about that because God told Israel to go to war on multiple occasions. King David was told to go to war on multiple occasions, and he was celebrated as killing thousands. So it's not talking about a a prohibition on war. It's also not a prohibition against self-defense. Exodus 22, verse 2, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. Someone breaks into your house at night and they're trying to hurt your family and you shoot them and the person dies. God does not count that as being murder. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients told you shall not murder, he's talking about the unjustified taking of a human life. One lexicon put it this way, to murder is to deprive someone of life by illegal, intentional killing. And if you murder, he has something to say to you. Verse 21 again, whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Notice it's open-ended, whoever. There's no exemptions here. If you murder someone, anyone who murders shall be guilty. I want you to note something. This is not describing what the judge is going to tell you when you get to court. When he says, you shall be guilty, he's not saying when you get to court, the judge is going to declare you to be guilty. That's not what he's saying. This is a future hypothetical. If at some point in the future you murder someone, you shall be. In exegesis, we would say that is a stative verb. It describes your condition. You are guilty. The moment you commit the crime, you enter into the condition of guilt. You are guilty. Guilty here refers to being subject to someone else's control. You might say to be their slave. And here you're the slave of the court. It's another way to say if you are guilty, you are liable to punishment. You are deserving of punishment. And here you're a slave of the court. The court here is a local tribunal that would determine the accused fate. The court is not here to determine whether or not you're guilty. You are guilty. The court is here to determine what your punishment will be. This court that it refers to here is a lower court. It could be any local tribunal. And the court will merely affirm your condition as being guilty. But notice he doesn't tell us what the actual punishment is going to be. In verse 21, all he says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, shall be liable for punishment by the court. That's all he says. There's no mention of the punishment. We know what the punishment is under the Mosaic law, Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. We know what the punishment is. But Jesus is not talking about punishment here. His point here is not the punishment. His point here is that you are guilty. That is what God told the ancients. Verse 22. But I say to you. Jesus now takes the Old Testament law and he puts his words right alongside of it and says, that's what the Old Testament law says, but here's what I say. This is the Son of God speaking the Word of God. And he's giving the new covenant law. 
You know, the Pharisees would have looked at that commandment in the Old Testament, do no murder, you shall not murder. And they would have said, you know what? I've never expressed that sin. I've never committed that sin. Ergo, I'm righteous. And I have a right standing with God because I've never killed anybody. You know, people today still make the same argument. You ask them, are you a good person? They say, I've never killed anyone. But if you want to be righteous in God's eyes, that's not going to work. That doesn't work according to God's standard. If you look back up, Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pointing to your outward works and the lack of outward sin is not enough. Just because you haven't killed anybody doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Notice what Jesus says, though. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. Everyone. No exceptions. There's no one who's special here. This applies to all. Everyone who has anger towards their brother. Brother here refers to other believers. And this is where the the clever one will say, oh, so I can't be angry with other believers, but I can be angry with all those unbelievers out there. No, I have a seminary professor who said this. It's emphasis, not exclusion. He's emphasizing don't be angry with other believers, but he's not excluding the fact that you shouldn't be angry with unbelievers too. If you have anger towards a brother, anger here, the Greek word here, refers to a mood, an internal disposition. It's an attitude that we use to respond to people and to situations when we feel and we deem that we have been treated unjustly, when someone has done something wrong, when we have been denied a right or a privilege that we should have, we respond with anger. This is sinful anger. It arises when I am offended. It arises when I don't get what I want, when someone denies me what I deserve. If you want to see this, it's in James 4. James 4, verses 1 and 2, he describes where anger comes from. James 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Quarrels and conflicts come from anger. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Here it is, you lust, you desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious. Envy is greed plus anger. I want something, you have it, and now I don't like you for it. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. At the root of it is sinful anger. Quarrels and conflicts occur when you don't get what you want, and as a result, you become angry. And anger rises in your heart and starts to fill your heart. And when it fills your heart, eventually it comes out in what you say, in what you do, and how you behave. James said, you lust and do not have, so you murder. Ultimately, the problem of murder is a heart problem. It happens when a person is angry, and that anger drives them to murder. Murder is just the outward expression of what's going on in the heart. Anger of the heart is murder of the heart. Verse 22 again. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. 
Again, notice Jesus does not say everyone who is angry and yells at his brother, everyone who is angry and murders his brother, everyone who is angry and gives his brother the cold shoulder. He just says, if you have the internal disposition of anger, if you have the attitude of anger in your heart, an anger that comes from, I'm not getting what I want, the moment that shows up, you are guilty. The Greek phrase he uses, shall be guilty before the court, is the exact same phrase that he used in verse 21 to describe murder. There's no difference between the two. He's drawing an equivalent. Anger in the heart is murder of the heart. Not only is the sin made equivalent, the guilt is also equal. The angry person has the same guilt as the murderer. In God's eyes, you are deserving of the same punishment. If you are a murderer or you are angry, even if that anger is not outwardly displayed, you are guilty, deserving of punishment. Now, to be honest, most often when we get angry, we don't go out and kill someone. Jesus now gives us two examples of how anger is often expressed. And it's expressed with the tongue. Look at verse 22. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that's the LSB, by the way. The uh, NASB translates it, you good for nothing. Raka is actually a really hard word to translate. So because it's hard to translate, the LSB just transliterates it and just kind of gives you the English form of it. And it's only used once in the New Testament. It's used right here, and that's it. So it becomes a little difficult to translate. When lexicon said of the word, it is a term of abuse, a put-down, relating to a lack of intelligence. It's like calling someone a numbskull, a good-for-nothing. You have so little intelligence that you are absolutely useless. This is just another way of slandering someone. This is the outward expression of anger. Paul makes that connection in Colossians 3.8. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. The root of this kind of language is a heart filled with anger. To call your brother Raka, to call him a good-for-nothing, a numbskull, is to slander your brother, and it is evidence that you have sinful anger in your heart. And if you do that, verse 22, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And once again, like the murder in verse 21, just like we saw with anger in the heart in verse 22, if you call your brother this, you shall be guilty. And again, the exact same Greek phrase, the exact same words, you are guilty. The only change here is the court that it mentions. And now instead of just the tribunal, the local court, he says you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the ultimate court. If in your anger you slander, gossip about someone, call them a mean name, Jesus says you are guilty. You're guilty even before the Sanhedrin. Verse 22 gives us another example. Whoever says, you fool, 
Full here is the Greek word moros, and it's almost synonymous with raka. It's almost synonymous. In fact, it can also be translated as full. Both of these words can be translated as full. This word, fool, is also used to describe the unbeliever. Matthew 25, the story of the, the ten virgins. The unwise were called moros, fools. In the Old Testament, moros was used to describe the unbeliever who says there is no God. And there's been a lot of ink spilled debating the nuances between these two insults he uses here, raka and fool or moros. And some have argued that Jesus is saying, look, there are some things that you can call people that's this kind of sin, and there are other things that it's a worse sin if you call them that. And they would say calling someone a moros, a fool, is worse than calling someone raka or a numbskull. And it's deserving of a greater punishment. That's a pretty difficult argument to make based solely on those words. Usually they make that argument not on the words themselves, but on the court that's listed. When he says, if you call them raka, he says, you will be guilty before the court, the local tribunal. But if you call them moros, it supposedly goes to a higher one. Oh, I got that backwards, I'm sorry. You call, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty before the court. You call them Raka, you're guilty before the Supreme Court, and now Moros, and they just assume that's a higher level sin. The problem with that is this. Punishment is not mentioned here at all. If you take that view, what that essentially says is, it's better for me to call you a Raka than it is for me to call you a fool. These insults over here aren't as bad as these insults over here. Do you think that's what Jesus is trying to get you to do? His goal is not here for you to put grades on your sin and figure out which sin is better. His point here is that you are guilty, and he is focusing on the guilt because he does not mention at all the punishment. He didn't mention the punishment in verse 21. He didn't mention it when we talked about anger in the heart. He didn't mention it when we talked about being calling someone a raka. Now, here in verse 22, when he says, if you call someone a fool, look at verse 22 again, you shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Everyone who says, you fool, shall be guilty. The exact same Greek words that he's used in verse 21 and 22 over and over and over again. He's used it four times now to describe your guilt. It's the same guilt for murder, the same guilt for anger in the heart, the same guilt for calling someone raka, and the same guilt for calling someone a fool or a moros. It's the same. You are guilty. And now he gives us the punishment. If the guilt is the same, then the punishment for all of those is also the same. What is the punishment? End of verse 22. Shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. He's not arguing that a human court should put someone to death for calling somebody else's name. What he's arguing is, in the court of heaven, your guilt is the same. The punishment in heaven for murder is hell. The punishment for anger in the heart is hell. 
the punishment for calling someone a name, whether it's Raka or Moros or any other name you can come up with. In heaven, the punishment deserved for that guilt is hell. You'll hear people say all the time, I don't have an anger problem. Never killed anybody. I don't beat my spouse. I don't beat my children. I don't yell, scream, curse, shout, verbally berate anyone. And then they give you a list of things that they do do. I don't get angry. I get annoyed, frustrated, irritated, vexed, irked, put out, displeased, ticked, bent out of shape, irate, indignant, resentful. You know where I got that list? From a thesaurus. I looked up the word anger. That's all just different ways of saying I'm angry. And Jesus says, if you are angry, you deserve to go to hell. Because it makes you nothing more than a Pharisee to put on a good show and be nice to people when your heart is filled with anger and hatred for your brother. Your righteousness as a Christian should surpass that of the Pharisees. He wants you to have a pure heart a heart filled with love for others, that you would be righteous, not just in your behavior, but in your thoughts and your attitudes. And anger in the court of heaven is a grievous sin that brings about eternal punishment. You have a real problem if you have anger. You are guilty. And if you have not trusted in Christ, if you are not a Christian this morning, you need to understand something. God knows exactly what's going on in your heart. You can hide it from the people in the church. You can hide it from your pastors. You might be able to hide it from your wife and your children, but you are not fooling God. He reads the hearts and the minds and the attitudes and intentions of a man. He knows exactly what's going on. And in his court, you are guilty. And there is nothing that you can do to remove that guilt. There is nothing you can do to change your guilt. Your only hope is for you to run to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to pay for it for you. To stand in your place and to become guilty on your behalf and pay the penalty that you deserve. That is your only hope. And if you won't do that, you will stand before God and your judgment is already determined. You are guilty. Only Jesus can remove your guilt. Have you trusted in him? Are you trusting in him this morning to deal with your guilt? Or are you still looking to your own works and your own efforts, thinking that if you just come to church in the morning, everything will be okay? I love this church, but this church is not going to make you a Christian. Only God can do that. This church won't get you to heaven. Only Christ can do that. The first problem with your anger, if you are angry, you are guilty enough to go to hell. The second problem with anger. If you are angry, you cannot worship. If you are angry, you cannot worship. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, let's stop right there. Presenting your offering. Again, if you read the commentaries, they go through all this list of what offering is he talking about? Are these guilt offerings? Free will offerings? Votive offerings? Is this a wine offering? Is this a sacrifice for sin? Is this talking about sin offerings? I think that's really missing the point. I don't think that's his point here. Because the words that he uses here, presenting your offering, present and offering, are both terms used to describe worship. 
And they're used to describe the presentation of any kind of offering. They're very broad, very general terms. They're not limited to just one kind of offering. The point is not the kind of offering, but the ultimate purpose of making that offering. The ultimate purpose is that the person is coming to worship. And if you come to worship God, verse 23, and there remember that your brother has something against you. I want to start at the end of that. Your brother has something against you. What does that mean? Some have said that Jesus is intending to discuss the need for confession of all sin to others. That when you sin against someone, you just need to go and confess and deal with it. The problem with that is Jesus doesn't mention confession in this passage anywhere. It's good theology to say if you've hurt someone and sinned against them, you need to go back and confess. That's good theology, just the wrong text. That's not what he's talking about. Others have said the statement, your brother has something against you, means that your brother is angry with you for something that you have done. And now they are angry and you need to go help them resolve their anger. One commentator said it is not enough to control one's temper, though that is important. One must not arouse other people's anger. Now, in one sense, I agree with that. Kind of like in Ephesians 4, he says, do not provoke your children. Don't intentionally try to upset people. I agree with that. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because, let me ask you a question. Can you preach this appropriately without provoking people's anger? No. Jesus would have violated that law. If that's what he's saying, well, he upset a lot of people. That makes you responsible for someone else's anger. And the Bible nowhere supports that conclusion. You are responsible for your anger. You are responsible for your sin, not the sin of someone else's heart. So what does Jesus mean when he says, your brother has something against you? First, this is not talking about any sin in general. How do we know that? Go back to the beginning of verse 23. Notice it says, therefore. You guys have all heard it. What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore is pointing back to what came before it. It's pointing back to the previous topic. Verse 21, verse 22, they're discussing the specific sin of anger. Secondly, notice, he specifically mentions your brother. This also connects back to verse 22. Look back at verse 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother. And again, everyone who says to his brother, Raka. So when he gets to verse 23 and says, your brother has something against you, what might he be talking about? You know, like you called him a name, you were short with him, you gave her this cold shoulder, you withdrew from the relationship, you lied and said everything's okay when everyone knew everything wasn't okay. You got mad, you got upset, you harbored resentment and bitterness. You felt like that person had wronged you in some way. They've done me wrong. And instead of forgiving them, you dwelt on it and you thought about it over and over and over. And some of you are still thinking about it over and over and over. And the more you think about it, the more that anger swells and builds inside your heart. And every time you go back to it, it just reminds you of it again and you get angry all over again. And your brother has noticed that you're angry. 
Your anger has hurt your brother, and now he has something against you. And by the way, brother can refer to women as well. It's a broad term. And as a result of your anger, your relationship is a cold shell of what it used to be. Why? Because you are angry and you refuse to repent. You refuse to forgive. And now your brother has a legitimate charge against you. He has a legitimate reason to say you are guilty. You have been sinfully angry with him. Now here you are at church this morning with a heart filled with anger towards a brother and you're trying to worship God. Verse 23. You are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember. If you didn't remember it when you walked in, I hope by now you remember it now. You know, the sinful mind can be really forgetful. And sometimes that's actually a mercy. Because that means there are times where I've sinned and I don't remember sinning. I don't have that constant reminder every week of all the things I've ever done wrong in my life. Can you imagine if you remembered every one of your sins perfectly? How miserable you would be. That's kind of a mercy. We can actually forget that we've hurt people. And here Jesus recognizes that reality. That when I got in the car this morning to come to church, I didn't have a conscious remembrance of what I did. I didn't remember that my brother has something against me. And if you came to church this morning, that's what you realize, that you've hurt another person with your anger. What are you to do? Verse 23. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. This is astounding. God is saying, look, I don't want your worship. Don't come to me and try to worship me while you're harboring anger and hatred towards another person in the church. You can't worship. And you see this in the Old Testament when Israel was in sin. If you want to go over to Micah 6, this is where we're headed. He repeatedly told them, look, I'm not interested in your sacrifices and your offerings. I'm interested in you being righteous and holy. This happened in the book of Micah. Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before Yahweh? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Shall I come with him with all my sacrifices? Verse 7, is Yahweh pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's the answer? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does God, what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It would be better that you just love one another than to live like the devil as Israel was doing and oppress the poor and hurt people and be angry with people and murder each other. It would be better that you just be holy and love one another than to come in here with hearts filled with hatred and anger against your brother and pretend like you're worshiping God in sincerity when you're not. Jump down to verse 12. For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Violence, by the way, is the behavior of those who are filled with anger. 
and her inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. They're coming to the God who is love. They're coming to him with hearts filled with hate. And they think God is pleased because they killed a goat. God is not interested in worship from such people. He does not want the worship of those who are unloving and hateful towards others while feigning love for God. Let's be clear, harboring anger and resentment against someone else is hating them. You cannot love and be sinfully angry with people at the same time. They are polar opposites. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, you know this chapter. This is the love chapter. And I just want to show you that love and anger do not fit together. We're talking about sinful anger here. Love and sinful anger do not fit together. 1 Corinthians 13, look at verse 4. Very first phrase, love is patient. Patient here is a compound word. Macrothume. It comes from macro. Macro means long. And thume comes from thumos, which is the word for anger or passion. So you might say this word for patient means to be long-passioned, long-tempered, slow to anger. One commentator said of this word, it is opposed to haste, to passionate expressions and thoughts. It denotes the state of mind which can bear long when oppressed and provoked, and when one seeks to injure us. If you're loving your brother, if you're loving God as you are to love him, you will be slow to anger. Note it. It's not saying you will be slow to express your anger. It'll take a while before it comes out. No, this is talking about it'll be slow to arise in your heart. To even show up. You will be slow to anger if you are loving. There is another word in 1 Corinthians 13 that deals with anger. Jump down to verse 5. Verse 5, it does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked. That's our word there. Love is not provoked. The root here deals with being sharpened. A.T. Robertson defines this as irritation, sharpness of spirit. When you are loving your brother, you won't be irritated and annoyed easily. You often hear people say, well, she made me mad. That person just irritates me. It's not that person's fault. It's the lack of love in your heart. It's the lack of love in my heart when I get irritated and frustrated with people. We're not loving our brother when we are irritated and annoyed. Listen, you cannot love your brother and harbor anger at the same time. I have one more cross-reference for you. It's in 1 John. 1 John 3. We'll look at 1 John 3 and then 1 John 4. 1 John 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Notice, 
You can love your brother or you can hate your brother. And if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. And we just learned from Matthew 5.22 that murder is just anger in the heart. Anger that has been expressed. Murder and anger share equal guilt in the court of heaven. Jump over to 1 John 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you are a believer, you have the love of God abiding in you. You are called to demonstrate that love to the other people around you. And how do you demonstrate that? By being patient, long-suffering, long-tempered, slow to anger, difficult to annoy and to frustrate. We can go back to Matthew 5. It should take a while before anger arises in your heart. And when anger arises in your heart, you need to go to the Lord and just be honest with him. I am not loving my brothers and I'm not loving you as I ought to. We're harboring sinful anger this morning. What are we to do? Matthew 5 verse 24. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Notice the priority here is not on worship. You can't get your vertical relationship right until your horizontals are right. If you mess up the horizontal relationships, your verticals are going to be off. You see the same thing in uh, 1 Peter 3. He talks to husbands, and he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. If your horizontal relationship is off, you can't have a vertical. You need to be reconciled. God does not want your worship until you are reconciled to your fellow believer. And it doesn't matter what the other person did to incur your anger. I mean, think about this for a moment. Let's say it's another believer in the church that you're angry at, and they did something horrible to you. Let me ask you a question. If they're a true believer, has God forgiven them? Yes. Does God love them right now? Yes. So why do you, believer, hate them? If God can forgive them, why can't you? If Jesus, the one who died, you you haven't died for anyone, have you? The one who died for that sin, if he can forgive and love them, what's your excuse? Are your standards that much higher than God's? Do you think that you are more offended than God was by that sin? If you want to worship, go be reconciled to those that you have anchor with. Notice the priority at the end of verse 24. Verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother. Don't bother giving sacrifices to God. Go show your love to your brother by being reconciled. Confess your anger, acknowledge the hurt that you have caused, ask for forgiveness, and then forgive them and restore that relationship. And then when you've been reconciled, then come back and worship. Because only when you have been reconciled to your brother is the Lord interested in hearing from you. Does someone have something against you this morning? Have you sinned against someone by sinful anger? Has your anger caused hurt to another person? Are you harboring resentment or bitterness towards someone? 
Go to the Lord this morning. Ask him to forgive you. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of it this morning. And then this week, go to your brother and be reconciled and get it taken care of before you come back to worship next Sunday. We've seen two problems with your anger. If you're angry, you are guilty. And if you're angry, you cannot worship. The third problem with anger. If you are angry, you don't have much time. You don't have much time. You know, going to someone to be reconciled is hard. It requires a lot of humility. If you've ever gone to confess sin to someone else, I hope you have. It's not easy. It's not fun. It takes a lot of humility. You really have to humble yourself to say, I sinned against you. Here's what I did, and I know I hurt you in these ways. That's hard to do. And it's so hard that sometimes we hope that the relationship will just heal on its own. If I just don't talk about it again, if I just don't bring it up, they'll just get over it. You know the old saying, time heals all wounds? No, it doesn't. And that is the point Jesus wants to make in these last two verses. You don't have much time. You need to resolve this quickly. Verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Jesus gives something of a little short parable. It's a little hypothetical story to illustrate the point. And in this hypothetical, you are the guilty one. And you need to go and reconcile with your brother. And here it's not your brother. He says your opponent at law. This is any person who brings a charge, you might say a plaintiff or an accuser. This is a legal opponent. And you are guilty of some kind of sin associated with anger. What kind of sin would a legal opponent want to take you to court for? Assault, property damage, slander, gossip, defamation, all the results of anger. In the Roman Empire, if I had something against you, I could come and find you and drag you to court and make you go to court with me so we can resolve our problem. And that's what he says here. While you are on the way, your accuser went and found you, and now he's dragging you to court. And you are guilty. And you are en route to the court. And the only time that you have left is the time it takes you to get from where you are to the time you walk into the courtroom. Because as soon as you get into the courtroom, you're guilty. Here's the penalty. You know you're guilty. He knows you're guilty. All that's left is the punishment. Wouldn't it just be better to reconcile with them while you're on the way? Before you get to court? Wouldn't it be less painful if you just acknowledge a sin and make things right with him so the judge doesn't have to do it? Because once the sentence is rendered, once you get to court, you're going to get the sentence, and once it's rendered, there's nothing you can do. Notice the end of verse 25, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. The assumption is as soon as you're at the judge, the judge is going to give you to the officer and the officer is going to deliver you to the prison. It's over. You're guilty. You're going. And once you're in court, there will be no mercy. There is no plea deals. There is no reprieve. There is no hope of pardon. 
verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out of, of there until you have paid up the last, the LSB puts quadrants. A quadrant was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. This was, I think, the smallest Roman coin. The NASB translated it until you pay the last penny, and that's a good way to describe it. This is another way of saying, once you're in jail, there's no mercy for you. You're going to pay everything you owe. So what is Jesus telling us? When it comes to reconciling after conflict, you don't have much time. As you allow your anger to damage the relationship, not only will it continue to damage the relationship, but your guilt continues to accrue and build up. Your relationship to that person continues to crumble. Your relationship to God suffers, and God is gracious. He does give you some time, but it's not a lot. And if you're a believer, when the time runs out, then comes discipline, chastening. God will chasten you through circumstances, through illness, or some other means until you repent. Sometimes the chastening comes through church discipline and members of the church coming and saying, you're in sin, you need to knock it off. You need to repent. Wouldn't it be better to just repent of the anger and be reconciled so you don't have to go through that? Wouldn't it be better just to go and resolve the problem than have to go through the discipline and the chastening? Now, as for believers, if you're an unbeliever, you have not trusted in Christ. Your situation isn't just bad. Your situation is dire. You see, the reality is, if you have not trusted in Christ, you are guilty. And you're guilty of far more than just anger. You can't point, as we have seen, you can't point to your external good behavior. God reads your heart, and no one can live up to the standard that Jesus just, just laid out for you. Because everyone has had anger in their heart. Everyone has been guilty here. If you have not trusted in Christ, you are guilty. You deserve punishment. You deserve to be thrown into hell. We saw that in verse 22. If you don't trust in Christ, you cannot worship God. You can pray to God all you want. You can go through every religious exercise in the world, but you have no ability to worship God because God does not hear from people who are filthy sinners. He said, come to me and worship me with clean, undefiled hands, and your hands are dirty. You are filthy with sin. You cannot worship God. And if you're if you haven't trusted in Christ, you don't have much time. You can die before this service ends. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Because when you die, you are already in a state of guiltiness, and your judgment has already been determined. Your punishment is already set. And once you are there, you will be there until you pay every last drop. And since you have an infinite debt, you will never pay it off. If you have not trusted in Christ, you have a real big problem this morning. What are you going to do? There's only one thing you can do. 
And that's to recognize you can do nothing. All you can do is run to Jesus and beg for mercy. And Jesus promised, if you come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. We heard a wonderful sermon last week about Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You're heavy laden with guilt this morning, run to Jesus. And that is also true for those of you who are believers and you're under the burden of sin this morning, run to Jesus and let him cleanse you once more. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we, this is a difficult passage in the sense that it condemns everyone, that it exposes our weakness and our inability to be pleasing to you on our own, that it exposes the sinful nature of our own hearts, and that if we have an honest view of ourselves, that outside of Christ, every one of us is guilty this morning. But this morning, we are so thankful for Christ. So thankful that Jesus came to this earth, lived as a man, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross, suffered the wrath that we are due for our guilt, so that all those who trust in him can receive his righteousness, and he will take their guilt from them. And in Christ, we stand perfect and pure and clean and acceptable to you. We do ask that if there are any of anyone in this room, from children to adults, if they do not know Christ, that you would bring them to saving faith, that you would show them their sin, that you would show them Christ as being beautiful and marvelous, and that they would run to him. And we ask that you would help us to deal with the guilt and the guilt of our own hearts, this anger in our own hearts, that we would repent and be reconciled. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.